Church, why don't you join me in prayer as we come to this portion of Scripture. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word to us. Uh, There's so much we read here that we find shocking and surprising. Um, And so, Lord and God, we ask that you would give us uh, calmness in our hearts and our minds as we engage in your word. Uh, Father, we pray that the circumstances will be conducive, that you will bring peace to us. Um, that what you say to us would strike us not just in inspiring our minds, uh, but firing up our hearts for the glory of your name. Help us, dear Lord, as we hear from you today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, well, church, welcome to another week of our sermon series on Hosea. Uh, from this week onwards, we're going to move a little quicker through this book, and we're going to look at two chapters per week over the next few Sundays until we finish off our sermon series. And that's not because we're in a rush, but because the remaining chapters are effectively a reiteration and reinforcement of the themes we've already discovered so far. As we'll see, Hosea 9 to 10, which is our focus for today, is basically an extension of Hosea's sermon, which started all the way from Hosea chapter 5. Uh, But we're going to do something a little bit differently today. Uh, You see, we've applied our sermon from Israel and Gomer's perspective over the past couple of weeks, right? Uh, Now, just to flag, when we read the words Israel here in Hosea, we're not referring to the nation-state of Israel. Uh, The word Israel in the Bible just means the people of God. And so over the past couple of weeks, right, we have time and time again applied this to our lives, and we've reminded ourselves of the need to repent and to return, Furthermore, we have at times applied it from God's perspective as well. We've learned about what God thinks and what God expects of us. I'm not sure if you've noticed, we have never applied it from Hosea's perspective. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to work our way through these two chapters and drill down on a few themes. Right. So for example, if you have your sermon outlines, in point one, we're going to see how chapters 9 and 10 is an extension of Hosea's sermon. In point two, we're going to see how this expands some of Hosea's chief concerns. But then in point three, we're going to see and hopefully embrace what Hosea himself has to teach us. Today, we're going to learn how to cultivate a prophetic voice. This voice is something that each and every one of us can have and do have by the Spirit of God. And my prayer today is that we will be deeply moved in our passage to embrace this privilege that we have in Christ. And now what is a prophetic voice? We know what the word prophet means. We know what they do. But what is a prophetic voice? Uh, Let's be clear. A prophetic voice doesn't mean that we can tell the future like prophets, right? It also doesn't mean that we carry the same authoritative force when we speak. It's not like we are the prophets. It doesn't even mean that we represent God like the prophets. That's not what I mean by a prophetic voice. Our prophetic voice is still very much a human voice. It is still prone to error. Uh, But it's actually modeled after what we see the prophets do in the Old Testament. And it has a sincere desire to accomplish the very same outcomes. So if you look at your outlines, you'll see uh, my attempts at giving uh, my best definition for a prophetic voice. Let me read it out for you. Uh, It says this, A prophetic voice unashamedly highlights the sins and follies of a generation. It warns about the coming judgment and punishment. 
It speaks of the hope of grace. It calls for repentance and faith. And it models the countercultural right path forward. There's a lot there. We're not going to be able to cover everything in today's sermon. But I want you to have this in the back of your minds because we're going to keep coming back to this periodically. And as we work our way through these two chapters, I hope we see that the gospel actually empowers us so that everyone is in a position to speak up or live out for someone else. Everyone is in a position to speak up and live out for someone else. Come to point one with me as we see Hosea's sermon extended, right? And of course, we didn't get to read the whole of Hosea 9 to 10, and I want to encourage you to do so in your personal devotions this week. And as you do, one of the themes you'll quickly discover in these two chapters is the persistent unfaithfulness of God's people in the Old Testament. Persistent unfaithfulness. It's there in verse 1, right? Do not rejoice, Israel. Do not be jubilant like the other nations, for you have been unfaithful to your God. There's that word again, right? You have loved the wages of a prostitute at every threshing floor. And our church, there are two things worth remembering here. Uh, Firstly, in the book of Hosea, the theme of relational and sexual promiscuity has been consistently used as a metaphor to symbolize the people's unfaithfulness towards God. And once again, I just want to remind us that this is actually profoundly appropriate. Because there's probably no sin or transgression that produces a greater sense of betrayal, a breach of trust, or pain than the sort of violation that comes from infidelity and marital unfaithfulness. Those of you who have been sinned against in this area know that there is an invisible bruise that is difficult to heal. And so the Bible here uses all of the emotions associated with infidelity and applies that to how God's people have treated God. God's people have turned their backs against God. And the language of wages of prostitute here heightens that sense of unfaithfulness, right? Because you see, it shows that God's people were so bent on rebelling against God that they would even pay money, they would even pay a cost to be unfaithful. Ah, But secondly, we must remember that Hosea has preached on this again and again. If you've been with us from week one of the sermon series, you're probably sick of hearing this because it's such a repeated theme. Ah, But that's the point, isn't it? God's prophet Hosea has highlighted their sin, but God's people are still not getting the message. They're still persistent in their unfaithfulness towards God. And so, church, there is a predicted judgment. Hosea 9 verse 7 tells us this, right? The days of punishment are coming. The days of reckoning are at hand. Let Israel know this because your sins are so many and your hostility so great. The prophet is considered a fool, the inspired person, a maniac. Again, two things worth noting here. Firstly, Hosea is making it clear that God's people's hard-heartedness will not go unpunished. They may be walking around like there are no consequences for their sin and unfaithfulness, but Hosea tells us, right, sin always catches up. And when it does, it always blows up in our faces and hurts ourselves and those in close proximity. Sin has a massive AOE. The just and righteous God will always 
punish wickedness. Uh, this is cause um, of comfort for those who are on the receiving end of injustice, uh, but it's also a cause of concern for all who are engaged in wickedness. And that's why, secondly, we're told that the people's sin and the people's unfaithfulness is so great that the people are so twisted and their hearts are so depraved that they even take good things and turn them into bad things. Now, that's one of the very interesting characteristics about sin and hard-heartedness. It takes good things and flips them into bad things. Let me give you a couple of examples. It takes power. And instead of using it to care, sin turns it into authoritarianism. It takes good things like money, and instead of using it to bless sin, turns it into greed. It takes sex, and instead of using it to love, to cherish, to procreate sin, turns it into abuse. And in the case of chapter, seven verse, uh, chapter 9, verse 7, it takes the wisdom of a prophet, and instead of heeding his words and turning back to God and life, sin and the people of God call a prophet a fool. So Hosea says, the days of punishment are coming. We've heard it before, and we're hearing it again. But the extension of Hosea's sermon also includes a patient call to repentance. Chapter 10, verse 12 says this, So righteousness for yourselves. Reap the fruit of unfailing love and break up your unplowed ground. This is a beautiful bit. For it is time to seek the Lord until he comes and showers righteousness on you. Hosea is saying this, guys, <clears throat> you have gone insane with your sin. God's punishment is coming. You are a, on a full speed ahead direction towards destruction, but there's another path right ahead of you. It's called repentance. And if you seek the Lord, if you turn from your sin, you can have life instead of death. Church, this word of grace, this patient call to repentance is the color in an otherwise black and white painting of God's people's unfaithfulness and sinful condition. This here is hope. Hosea is saying, God hasn't given up on you. God is chasing you. God is not done with you. And so you don't have to give up on yourself. Now you can run to God today. It's time to seek the Lord. But you see, as we read this extended version of Hosea's sermon, what we quickly discover is that he's also targeting a few concerns. A few concerns he has with God's people. These are concerns that are further creating a distance between God's people and God. Now, church, listen closely. The first concern is self-entitlement. They thought that they deserved more than they actually did. And they took what they already had for granted. I'll say it again. They thought they deserved more than they actually did. And they took what they already had for granted. We see this in Hosea 10 verse 1, right? It says, Israel was a spreading vine. He brought forth fruit for himself. As fruit increased, he built more altars. As his land prospered, he adorned his sacred stones. What we see is that historically, God in his kindness allowed his people to prosper. 
God gave his blessings of land and provision. God loved his people. God protected his people. But like a spoiled child, God's people began to think that they deserved this. Like God owed them. So it wasn't long before they started taking it all for granted. Because you see, they took the very blessings of God and they did that which was unimaginable. Look at your passage. It says they built altars, they adorned sacred stones. These were all symbols of idolatry. Can you imagine that? God loved His people, so they take all of God's love and all of God's benefits and they use that to love other gods instead. What's more, they dare get angry and mad at God when God withdraws His blessings. Self-entitlement is shocking, isn't it? And yet perhaps this sort of self-entitlement is not as foreign as we think. Church, listen very closely. Are we similarly guilty of taking all that God has blessed us with and squandered it by pursuing pleasures and purposes apart from God? Have we used the gifts He has given to us to build our own kingdoms instead? Have we used the treasures He has given to us to feed our greed instead of blessing the needy? Have we used the opportunities He has given to us, but we use it to make a name for ourselves rather than make much of God? And then when God takes these blessings away from us, do we get mad at Him? Do we blame Him? Do we say, how dare you, God? Do we stop listening? Do we stop engaging? Do we stop serving? Do we stop giving? Do we stop worshiping because we feel like God owes these blessings to us? Ah, church, perhaps this is all a little closer to home than we think. Because our hearts are surprisingly similar. Uh, But there are other concerns, right? Because you see, Hosea 9, and particularly chapter 10, also further emphasizes the dark underbelly of God's people's unfaithfulness and their sin. Because you see, what we must not miss is that the people's sins were not just a minor inconvenience to their personal well-being. Sin wasn't just a transgression against God. No, in Hosea chapter 10, we realize at a deeper level that their sin was profoundly self-interested and deeply connected to injustice, to wickedness, and listen very closely, to pure evil. Now, chapter 9 verse 7 alludes to this, right? by speaking about how their sins are so many, their hostilities are so great, but we actually get a little bit more details in these two chapters. For example, out of self-interest and in their sin, God's people actually as a nation took advantage of women. That's what we see in chapter 9 verse 1 as they engaged in prostitution. Now, church, we live in a culture today that works really hard at empowering sex workers. I'm not sure if you've realized, but we normalize it as much as we can. And our society is going through great lengths to show, and you may have heard this sort of rhetoric before, that many sex workers enter into the industry by their own choice. It makes them feel empowered, that they're using their bodies as they wish to make an honest living for themselves, and they will say that there is absolutely nothing to be ashamed of. 
And so whether it's someone who does sex work online or in person, the consistent message we hear is, my body, my choice, I can do whatever I want, you can't say anything. And now I don't deny that some women and men do enter into the sex industry personally and willingly. We also cannot deny that the sex industry is one of the major driving forces for human trafficking where people are forcefully taken and coerced into working against their wills. Now, of course, people are trafficked for a whole range of reasons, and none of them are good. But research consistently shows that sex trafficking for the purposes of prostitution, for child sex tourism, for pornography, and the like, are one of the main drivers for human trafficking, or what is better known today as modern-day human slavery. Church, what we must not miss then is that this modern rhetoric of empowering sex workers may serve a small minority of men and women who see this as an accessible way to make a living. But this very motto of empowerment is plunging millions, millions of men and women, many of them are children, often if not always vulnerable, plunging them into further abuse, mistreatment, and violence. Our normalizing of the sex industry is creating a greater demand, and that demand is fueled by innocent people being given false promises and shipped off to different countries where they have no security or support and can do nothing but believe in the lives of criminals. Now, church, I want to make this point for two reasons. Firstly, the sort of temple prostitutions we see in the Old Testament is similar to the sex slavery industry we find today. It was women being used against their will for personal pleasure. And the shocking thing is, God's people here in Hosea chapter 9, verse 10, are engaging in that freely, willingly, and indulgently, and God's wrath burns over that. If you read these two chapters, then you will be shocked by the kind of punishment that God promises to all who continue on this path of abuse and mistreatment. He says that those who do not repent will be rejected and will be struck down. It is part of the very character of God to be angered by this sort of injustice. Now, but church, listen very closely. I hope we see that this is not a distant Old Testament issue. We have just heard how we modern people who call ourselves more enlightened, more advanced, engage in the same sort of oppression and injustice. The Bible makes it clear that any sort of support for the sex industry is a form of sinful, self-interested injustice, oppressing others for our momentary pleasure. Or whether it's the actual engagement of sex workers online or in person, whether it's the use of pornography which normalizes particular sexual acts that hurt real people, whether it's the passive endorsement or the subtle sexualizing of people, all of these are expressions of self-interested sin. Now, but church, there is more self-interested injustice here in Hosea 9 to 10. They didn't just take advantage of women. They took advantage of their neighboring nations who were weaker, 
and more vulnerable. We see this in Hosea 9.15. Turn there with me, chapter 9, verse 15. Here we read that they committed wickedness against Gilgal, their neighbor. They committed sinfulness in the house of the Lord or in God's actual land. And this verse tells us even their leaders who were meant to model godliness and faithfulness rebelled against the Lord their God by not listening and obeying His commands that lead to life. Uh, Now this verse here is brief in its description, uh, but the rest of Hosea and the Bible illustrates, shows us that their evilness included attacking neighboring nations and pillaging their land, stealing from them, murdering the weak and vulnerable, leaving behind orphans and widows. Once more, we need to remember that sin and a departure from God has great and grievous consequences. It is not a minor inconvenience that can be swept under a rug. The removal of God from our hearts actually justifies wickedness and evils of every sort. Now again, all of this can seem profoundly abstract and distant, and your eyes may be just glazing over this, right? We may feel like endorsement of the sex industry is a little closer to home, but as far as you're aware, the person sitting next to you is probably not invading his or her neighboring villages, probably not robbing the person living next to them, and probably not murdering the people close to them. At least you hope so, because you're sitting next to them, right? And yet, can we agree that the same evil that drove God's people in the Old Testament to do all of this is the same evil heart we possess? And church, here's a point to ponder. Are we humble enough to agree that we don't act out our sin with this degree of violence, not because we don't want to, but because we don't have the resources to? We don't do all of this, not because our hearts are incapable of that, but we don't have the tools to act out in this way. We don't have the power to act out in this way. Our church, my prayer is that we would have a degree of self-awareness to realize that if our desires could run free, if there were no consequences to our sins, then the greatest atrocities that frighten us are actually exactly the same things that we are capable of. Our greed, our self-interest, our selfishness actually knows no bounds. We will be willing to do great evil to get what we want, especially if we knew that we could get away with it. And that's exactly what we're seeing in Hosea 9 to 10. Here's one more concern in Hosea's extended sermon, and that's self-reliance. We see this in Hosea 10, verse 13 to 14. Let me read it for us. Hosea 10, verse 13 to 14. But you have planted wickedness, you have reaped evil. You have eaten the fruit of deception, because you have depended on your own strength and on your many warriors The roar of battle will rise against your people, so that all your fortresses will be devastated. The rest of the passage goes on, but once again, these verses remind us that God's punishment comes in the form of reaping what you sow. God doesn't give you what you don't want. If If God wants to discipline and punish you, He will just give you exactly what you want, because what you want will always reap destruction. 
In this case, right, they sowed wickedness and they reap evil. They sow deception, they reap destruction. But notice the concern there. Because you have depended on your own strength and on your many warriors. Yes, rather than rely on God's strength, the same strength that sustained them up to this point, God's people now thought that they were better than that. And so now they wanted to rely on their own strength and the might of their warriors for the journey ahead. Self-reliance, pride, foolishness. And so because of that, God says that judgment is coming upon them. Church, like the sins of self-entitlement and self-interested, I hope we realize that self-reliance is the same sin that strikes us all. Now you see, atheism is at its heart a religion of self-reliance. It's the idea that I don't need God, right? I have myself. But it's not just the atheist who is guilty of this. Church, listen, you and I who profess to be Christians can be similarly guilty of self-reliance. When we say that we trust in Jesus for salvation alone, and yet we make up our own rules for what it means to follow Christ. We say that certain sins are more acceptable than others. That's a form of self-reliance. We figure out our own way rather than praying and seeking for God's way. We craft our own destinies. We make our decisions in ways that are completely separate and distant from God. And then we labor to show how impressive we are. Look at my strength. Look at my might. Look at my decision-making. Look at my accomplishments. Uh, The problem with self-entitlement, self-interest, and self-reliance is that it always fails. Isn't it true? Self-entitlement never works. Self-entitlement always makes us more bitter, more angrier, and more isolated. Uh, Self-interest also never works. It always hurts people around us, sometimes even people we don't know. It always leaves us guilty and ashamed. It can often result in self-hatred. And you see, church self-reliance never works because at the end of the day, we know how limited we are. It doesn't matter how hard we fight it. It doesn't matter how much we exercise and work out, how many time management tools we have, how many staff we hire for ourselves. At the end of the day, we will always be confronted with the frustrating reality of our finitude. And of course, these things always fail because all of these are expressions of a heart that is against God. Here's the thing though, church. I have a sneaking suspicion that you know this already. You're hearing this and you're going, all right, preacher, like I've heard this before. Let's get to the main point, right? Because you know the dangers of self-entitlement, self-interest and self-reliance. You struggle with it. You don't need me to tell you that. But church, I also know that you see all of these things tearing our world apart. And that's why it's appropriate for us today to just consider how we can echo the same prophetic voice to our world today. A world that so desperately needs to be called back to repentance. So why don't you come to point three with me? We have some actions to apply. Hosea's voice embraced. And now before we explore the how, I also just want to briefly highlight why it is, why it is that we don't speak with a prophetic voice, why it is that we don't speak against the injustices that are around us. 
And because church, you see, firstly, I think we need to recognize that our silence is partly because we know that we are to some degree party to the crime. In other words, we know deep within us that we have also committed injustices of some sort. Uh, perhaps not at the scale or degree of our broader culture, but certainly in our heart of hearts, we know that none of us are innocent. And so to speak up requires us to face the possibility that we have to own up to our complicity. We have to own up to our participation in injustice. Second of all, perhaps we don't speak up because we're scared of standing out. We're scared of standing out. Truth is, we are all sort of keyboard warriors behind the safety of a screen. But when we actually have to put our reputation, our credibility, and our well-being at stake, sometimes it's our silence that condemns us. And let's be honest, right? That's fair enough, okay? Because sometimes I'm even too shy to order what I want to eat at a restaurant, right? To stand up publicly for the truth? Oh my, it's scary. The third possibility for our silence is that we are just plainly indifferent. Indifferent to the plight of the oppressed. And I think far too many of us are in this camp than we like to admit, right? Now, I think that it's possible that our indifference is because of overexposure. As we guard ourselves from compassion fatigue, we sort of shut ourselves out from the reality of people's pain just to cope, right? Otherwise, it's just too much. Or, church, it's possible to be indifferent because we are hardening our hearts from the things that break God's heart. We think that our comfort is sufficient and other people's chaos are their own problems. And you know what? And the fact that there are so many people hurting doesn't really bother us that much. Is this you, right? You watch the recent news about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and the only thing that concerns you is whether it will impact you here in Australia. You'll think, oh, it's too bad that they're hurting there, but as long as my life here is okay, as long as I can keep buying rice and toilet rolls, my life is pretty unaffected. But church, the gospel of Jesus Christ radically changes all of that, doesn't it? Because you see, the gospel recognizes that we are, to some degree, party to the crime. And so strictly speaking, none of us have a right to speak up. And yet the gospel offers real forgiveness for real sin. That our complicity finds its cure in the cross of Christ. And so we speak up not as those who have the moral upper hand. Rather, we speak up as those who have been truly forgiven of the injustices we have caused and as those who are deeply concerned for those who are suffering. The gospel also recognizes our fear and our cowardice, right? It recognizes the fragility of our own status and our self-esteem. Yet it also frees us from being controlled by our fear because the gospel tells us that the God of the universe loves us, approves of us, and cherishes us regardless of what the rest of the world thinks. That frees us from living under the shadow of people's approval. It frees us unto courage even when the tide is against us. 
And of course, the gospel also awakens us to real pain. The gospel doesn't deny the brokenness of this world, yet it gives also deep insight into the character of God. Our God who is merciful, compassionate, and tender. A God who loves. A God who vacated His glorious heavenly throne to come to be with us in Christ. Who died on the cross to bear the pain and the suffering and the sins of the world. And who was raised to new life to usher in a brighter future. Church, God is not apathetic towards injustice. And as those who are part of God's new kingdom, we too are awakened to this new reality. As those growing to be like Christ, our Christ-likeness ought to find expression in deep compassion for those who are suffering, the poor, the marginalized. And all of this compels us to embrace the same prophetic voice as Hosea's. How? Well, firstly, I want to encourage us as a church to speak up, but don't rush. Now, by speak up, I mean very plainly to stand up courageously to address issues of injustice around us. Now, all of us will do this differently. Some of you in our church do and will possess an incredible degree of influence because of your work, because of your writing, because of your connections and relationships. And as a result, you have the unique opportunity to speak up in a way that very few people have. So as you grow in your Christ-likeness, as you grow in realizing the forgiveness you have in Christ, the approval you have in Christ, the heart of God demonstrated through Christ, my prayer is that you become even more sensitive to the wickedness and injustices you see around you and lend your voice to those who are afflicted. Uh, Here's the thing. I know some of you are directors of companies, owners of businesses, bosses of employees. You are uniquely positioned to speak up for those who are in more vulnerable positions. I know it's far easier to go along with so-called normal business practices which further perpetuate injustice But could it be that God has placed you in your position of power not to make life more comfortable for yourself, but to be a voice for the voiceless? But you see, you don't need to be a politician or an executive or multinational corporation to have a voice. Everyone is in a position to speak up for someone else. Because injustices occur at different levels and to different degrees. I don't know exactly what that could look like for you. But if you are working at a workplace where there are unjust systems against you or your colleagues, then embracing a prophetic voice is to say, this is not okay and something needs to be done. If you are a parent and you see your children's school coming under unjust pressure from the board or the Department of Education, then embracing a prophetic voice may be to speak up even if you prefer to keep your head down. You see, part and parcel of a prophetic voice is to say, your problem is my problem. To only speak up when it affects you is not a prophetic voice, it's just an annoyed voice. You're speaking up because it impacts you negatively. Prophets speak on behalf of others. 
If you know a friend who's being taken advantage of by their boss, by their workplace, by people who say they love them, you don't think to yourself, well, I guess that's their problem. No, a prophetic voice says, hey, I feel your pain. And I have the unique opportunity of objectivity to allow me to speak into this with boldness and truth. Speaking up is a profound act of love. Because it is taking on other people's hurts, their problems and concerns as our own, and then dealing with it as if it were our own. Now, but church, I also want to caution us to speak up, but don't rush. Don't be too hasty. And what I mean is this, I think it's entirely possible for us to be too trigger happy with speaking up. The problem with rushing is that it can sometimes bypass the important process of finding out the true source of the problem. And if we do that, the results we find will only address the surface level issues. Furthermore, the problem with rushing is that it can sometimes fail to recognize the deep pain that the person is feeling. We can become too concerned with fixing the problem and we fail to love the person. The problem with rushing is also that sometimes our solutions that come up with in the short term are very short term because we haven't sufficiently understood the problem and the impact that it has. Church, don't rush. Don't jump on social media right away to make really big claims. Don't rush to protest just yet. Don't be a blabbermouth at work. Learn to listen lots. Listening and understanding helps to build your credibility as the one who will speak with a prophetic voice. And by not rushing, your voice when you do speak will carry more weight and more influence. Church, don't you see? Everyone is in a position to speak up for someone else. What's that interesting about prophetic voice is that it's not just about speaking, it's also about living as well. A prophetic voice, as mentioned earlier in the introduction, also seeks to model the counter-cultural way forward that follows in the step of Jesus. So, church, if injustice that you're witnessing is violence, then we model peace. If it's unfair treatment, we pursue fairness in our dealings with other people. If it's anger and hatred, we model harmony or what the scriptures call shalom. If it's greed and gluttony, we model kindness and generosity. And our voice will grow louder when our actions are consistent with our words. We don't just stand on street corners decrying the injustices around us. We recognize that change can begin with us. And so you and I have the power by the gospel to live out the beautiful gospel alternative. Everyone is in a position to speak up and live out for someone else. But as we live out, church, we do so with an acute awareness of pride. Listen very closely. Here's the thing. The human heart is surprisingly sinful and deceitful. It can take innocent things and good intentions and turn them into a sense of pride and moral superiority. If we are not careful, those seeking to live a profoundly countercultural life will look around at those who are not living in the same way and they can start to think, goodness, these people, they're terrible. 
These people in my church, they don't just get it, right? Why can't they be more like me? I mean, if I can do it, why can't they? Maybe, maybe I'm better than them. Of course, we may not think it in such explicit terms. Uh, we may not say it that way. But our hearts could certainly start believing that. And you know your heart is subject to pride when you start looking down on others. When you scoff when others aren't as good as you. Or when you feel like your countercultural lifestyle deserves more credit, more attention, and more praise. Our prophetic voice exists to draw people to God, to God's justice, to God's love, not ourselves. And so we live out that which is countercultural, but remember the gospel and guard our hearts from pride. Lastly, then, prophetic voice is to call for repentance but not without first noticing the plank in our eye. A prophetic voice includes speaking up about the ills and injustices we see around us. It includes showing a better way through our lives. Uh, But it also includes calling those engaging in injustice to stop, to turn around. That's what repentance means. To turn from their sin, their wickedness and violence and turn to God instead. As mentioned before, one of the themes of Hosea's extended sermon is a patient plea to repentance. That self-entitlement, self-interest, self-reliance do not have to be the description of your life. That God's gospel gives life. That there is restorative grace, that His healing hand can be upon each and every one who turns to Him instead. And so church, we ought to use our voice to, to call people to this. It's the only hope for our world. Yet as we do, we call for repentance, not as those who have power to forgive. We call for repentance as fellow sinners who are in equal need of forgiveness. Now, this is empowering, right? Because it means that we do not need to live perfect lives before calling people to repentance. It's God who forgives. But it also empowers us to examine our own lives every time we call someone to repentance because it allows us to taste grace afresh each time. Knowing that the same thing we are calling our world to is the same thing that you and I need. Church, given everything that's going on in our world right now, perhaps I can conclude by showing how this message could apply to how we respond to the crisis in the Middle East right now. Uh, As alluded to before, the Middle East is currently in the middle of chaos. The nation of Israel and Palestine are at war with each other. Death tolls are into the thousands And if this morning's news is correct, it won't be long before we hit the tens of thousands. One wonders, what's the right response? I think as Christians, our prophetic voice prompts us to do a few things. The first is to pray. Like what we did just then, pray for the thousands of innocent lives at stake, especially the women and the children. I want you right now to listen very closely to the voices you hear from the back of our hall, the laughter and the cry of our children, and to notice that day by day, their voices are being silenced on the battlefield.
We do not need to have a political stance to have our hearts broken over the violent murdering of the vulnerable. So we pray that the Lord would protect and bring a stop to all of this violence. It's become very clear that both sides of the conflict are bent on violence. And it seems like the only way forward for all of this is that if there is humility on both ends, we require a real transformation of hearts. Political maneuvering, political strategy may help, but church, our hope is in the Lord. Our hope is that God would work in a powerful way. So we pray for protection, but we also pray for repentance. We pray that all who are guilty would realize the depths of their folly and their sin, that they will become awakened to their violent acts and repent. We use our voices to pray and to intercede for the weak and vulnerable. Church, we pray. Would you commit to praying about this every single day until it stops? That would be such a good use of our voices. Uh, But second of all, church, we guard our tongues from inciting further hate and violence. We guard our tongues from inciting further hate and violence. You've probably read the news that there is a lot of anger in the Middle East that is now spilling over to Australia and Sydney in particular. Uh, Violent protests, threats against Muslims and Jews, the use of fear in the public square. You know what? It is so easy for us to add our voice to stir the pot. But as Christians, we read the words of 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 23, and we heed it. We know to have nothing to do with unproductive talk and arguments. And by that, I mean we do not say or do anything that unnecessarily incites further anger and violence. Church, listen, we do not add to any of the anti-Semitic or anti-Islam sentiments that are becoming increasingly common today. We need to listen in times like these. We need to feel the pain of those who are hurting. We need to guard our tongues. Church, listen closely. Do not jump on social media to make a point. It's time to weep right now, and we need to do exactly that. And so thirdly, we use our prophetic voices to appropriately speak up for those on the receiving end of injustice. Appropriately speak up. Now, I want to be really honest with you right now, right? It's really hard to know how to do this well. Because it's probably right to say that both sides of the conflict have caused injustice, have been on the receiving end of injustice. The unprovoked attack on Israel is a gross act of injustice. But the indiscriminatory bombing on Gaza is also a gross act of injustice. In times of war, it's profoundly difficult to say who was right and who was wrong. And so perhaps our prophetic voices will be used not so much to speak into a complicated geopolitical situation, but we use it here at home. Because you see, there will be days coming when anti-Muslim sentiments will rise. And you personally may be tempted to see all Muslims negatively because of what you're hearing on the media. Or you may have Muslim friends who will suffer from prejudice and public hatred. 
People will assume that their religion equates to violence and they may be hated for that. Church, listen very closely. We must stand in between that and say that that sort of prejudice will not be tolerated in our hearts, in our society. We may fundamentally disagree with them about our religion and our faith, right? But that does not stop us from loving them. Especially as we know that Muslims also condemn the violent act of Hamas. They are not the same. And sort of our, out of our convictions of Scripture, we must not let bigotry and hatred have the last word. You see, many of them will feel profoundly voiceless during this time because they will be seen as criminals even though they've had nothing to do with that conflict. And church is our responsibility to speak up for them. Likewise, we may also see anti-Semitic sentiments rise. Just a few days ago, people were arrested outside the Jewish museum for performing the Nazi salute. Teenagers were threatened for hanging a Jewish flag on the back of their own cars. There is a heightened sensitivity to this issue right now. So many of them are living under fear. Rather than us saying, that's not my problem, we speak, don't we? Likewise, we, we may, we, we do have differences in our faith and ideology, but that does not stop us from loving them. Church, don't you see, the gospel prepares us for times such as these. Everyone is in a position to speak up and live out for someone else. And so church, my hope and prayer is that the Holy Spirit will give us courage to do so in the coming days and weeks. Because our prophetic voice is needed right now. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us today. We thank you for this patient plea for repentance that is saturated all throughout Scripture that draws us to yourself. But we thank you so much for a prophetic voice that is modeled in Hosea. And so, Lord and God, we pray that as we read this, we would be deeply compelled and moved by the gospel to speak up and live out for those who are in weaker and more vulnerable positions so that those who meet us and speak with us would gain a better understanding and awareness of the God we worship. Our Lord and God, we are so conscious right now that we need your courage. We need the confidence that comes from you. And so by your spirit, Lord, would you be so gracious as to lavish this upon us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.